Well, good morning uh, from here in London and welcome to today's FS Club seminar, A Fresh Approach to Risk Management. And we're delighted to have with us today, Chris Burt and Peter Neville Lewis uh, from the Risk Coalition. Uh, quite interesting, both of them are also dialing in for from London and uh, Peter is my neighbor, so I can look down on his house, but unfortunately we haven't seen each other in over a year. So Peter, hello, how are you doing? Now, you'll know me, I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien, uh, and it really is my pleasure to be able to introduce so many of these FS Club webinars, and we can only do so uh, because of the, as I say, the tolerance of our sponsors who allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. Uh, today's topic, risk, has been a running issue, as we all know, for the last three decades or so as increasingly we've taken a risk-based approach in financial services and often unseen um, a very strong risk-based approach in many operational businesses outside of financial services. So we hope to have a good discussion about that today. Now my job is to get out of the way as quickly as possible and let you hear from our experts and I'll be delighted to do so, but just a couple of reminders. Uh, firstly, uh, please do use the question and answer facility in the GoToWebinar. Uh, you'll send questions in to me and I will feed them into a conversation uh, with Chris and Peter uh, after their presentation. Um, all of the questions and comments that you make will be sent to them. Uh, your email is attached to it. <clears throat> so if you want to contact them directly, just type a question or comment in and I, I will make sure that they get it. The slides have been posted uh, and you, you can see them on the website as well as a link to Raising the Bar, uh, a book with a booklet which came out in December of 2019 uh, by Chris and Peter, uh, for which I provided a forward because I, I thought it was a very good booklet and well worth uh, reading. And finally, uh, the presentation itself will be up in a couple of days for you to share with friends and colleagues. So with no more ado, if I may, uh, folks, the floor is yours. Thank you, Michael. Could you uh, move to the next slide? Right, and uh, okay, so, so today's presentation is on a fresh, a fresh approach to, to risk management. So we thought we'd start with some old chestnuts, really. With uh, So if we go to the next slide, please, Michael. We thought we'd start with three lines of defense. Now, um, as some of you may well know, uh, a little while ago, the IIA, the Institute of Internal Auditors, um, decided to revamp its view of three lines of defense. Um, the three lines of defense has been around for a while very fashionable after the financial crisis um, in the what 2008 2009 uh, it was a response from the regulators and organizations trying to improve accountability for risk management um, but it has had critics it's uh, been seen as difficult to implement it's been seen as uh, slightly ineffective um, doesn't really achieve what it sets out to to achieve and so the IA decided to uh, revisit three lines events and um, uh, we'll move on to what they've come up with very shortly. But um, I think there are a few things to point out from Three Lines Defense. Um, the basic premise behind it probably remains sound. So if you if you step back and think about the Three Lines Defense and what it's trying to, to achieve, it's trying to ensure that there is independent oversight and challenge of management decision-making. Because obviously, in the run-up to the global financial crisis, um, there was unconstrained management decision-making to a large extent, and that ended up in all kinds of difficulties. So it's an extension of the four eyes principle. That's the basic model. Uh, next slide, please, Michael. So three lines of defense is dead. Um, and then 
unfortunately is not dead. The IA brought it back, they just dropped off defense and it's now the three lines model. Um, so in the IIA's three lines model, uh, they've largely left the first and third lines untouched. Um, and they've tried to, to fiddle with what they see as the role of the second line. Now, unfortunately, um, I don't think they've done a particularly great job with this. Um, so if you look at the diagram below, you'll see that second line, first line reports to senior management, absolutely clear. Third line internal audit reports through to the governing body, typically through the audit committee, that's fine. Um, second line, if we focus on second line risk management function, just for simplicity, uh, the II, IIA has them reporting through to senior management. Kind of understandable, if the CRO is, sits on the executive exco, then yes, they are part of management, but also the CRO should have a direct report through to, them, to the governing body, through to the chair of the board risk committee. And in fact, that is a requirement of European regulation and we're still subject or we're still aligned with European regulation. So, so the model as defined below doesn't fit with European um, regulation. And and secondly, the IA doesn't actually own this model. It's um, so the Basel Committee is currently revising principles for sound management of operational risk, and they they lean heavily on the three lines of defence model. Still call it the three lines of defence. So I'm not quite sure what the IA was hoping to achieve with this. Um, next slide, please, Michael. Well, that's great. We're looking here at a poll. Um, so. Uh, would you ditch the three lines model in your organization if you could? Um, uh, so absolutely, it's a devil's work. Probably, it just creates confusion without any benefit. Probably not. Not perfect, but has its uses, and definitely not. It keeps management on their toes and encourages robust challenge. So I'm just launching the poll now. Uh, fingers on buzzers. The FS Club audience is normally extremely swift, and today is no exception. We're already up to half of the audience has voted in eight seconds. Uh, I think that's a new record. Uh, just going to leave the poll open a few more seconds longer as we get up to 75% of the audience has voted. <clears throat> and I'll be closing the poll in just a second. And let's have a quick look at the results. And uh, basically, uh, 60% is probably not. Another 19% definitely not. So it's 80%. Uh, would not ditch it, they would keep it. Uh, so that's uh, back to you then, uh, Chris. Okay, I think Peter's going to pick up from this point. So, Peter, do you want to come in here? Yes, certainly. Um, just a, a quick sort of review, really, of, of what the three lines model um, basically is doing. I think most people will be, be familiar with this, with the first, the second, and the, the third lines. It's, it's set out on the slide. Um, the, the point is, what actually is the real function and remit of, of these three lines? Are, are they uh, trying to achieve separate things um, with, with the third line providing overall assurance, or should each of the three lines be providing some form of assurance um, so that you get a more holistic view? And uh, we have very loosely termed this integrated assurance because 
first of all, there is this issue around three lines. Um, if if internal audit, intern, Institute of Internal Audit uh, have removed defence but not replaced it with anything else, that leaves a slight question mark, I think, in a lot of, lot of people's minds. Um, so I can well understand why people don't want to throw the baby out of the bathwater. Um, but I think the, the model itself uh, does need some some advancement, particularly when we look at the complexity of modern risks, uh, often referred to as non-financial risks. I think that in itself is a bit of a misnomer because, of course, there is severe balance sheet impact from issues arising from climate change, from culture, from, from reputation, all the things that, that ESG is looking to address as well. Um, and I suppose the, the big question is, is, is it possible for one part uh, of the, the, the risk management um, function within an organization, which obviously includes uh, in, internal audit, um, is it possible for, for them to provide the board with complete assurance or does it need to be coming from a, a multiple uh, multiplicity of, of sources? And our view is, is very much that, the, that, that looking forward, um, over the next five to ten years. This is the direction of travel that organizations uh, should be embarking on. And it, it's interesting that uh, very recently the, um, the CSFI, who are very well established, well thought of, um, thought uh, leadership tank in the city, uh, came up with their annual banana skins report. And uh, at the top of the list there, you've got uh, macroeconomics in second place. The quality of risk management um, is, is still high in sixth place. Reputation is, is in the top 10. Culture comes in at 12. Uh, you've got sustainability. Uh, very much part of the whole ESG picture at, at 10 and political risk at 13. So there are a lot of these risks out there, which I don't think one particular line, um, particularly if it gets siloized as it not always, but very often can do in organizations, um, is seeking to provide the board with that uh, assurance around risk certainty that, it, that it's looking for. Um, but uh, I, we do think that really critically, the focus needs to be uh, more, much more on the first line. They, uh, and this is clear from a number of documents that have been written, in, including, including Basel and um, the European Standards Board, etc., uh, banking standards. Um, and even uh, Michael himself, when he wrote the forward, um, said the emphasis on first line responsibility and accountability for risk management is overdue. I think uh, so. Can we move on to the next slide, please, Michael? Indeed. Just a quick question from you, Purser, uh, uh, Peter, for the sake of clarification, <clears throat> is there a minimum size of organization to which the three lines apply? Ah, that's always or oh, the, the whole issue of. Um, where, where where do you draw draw the line? Clearly, there's a huge difference between fin, fintechs and, and, and much larger organisations. But I think the principles, nevertheless, apply that that everybody who is involved with with actually managing and executing the business, uh, ensuring that the control functions, particularly within FS, are properly maintained, and that all of that is being done, uh, the risk governance around that 
uh, is being effectively looked after and and uh, reported on. Uh, need there needs to be a holistic framework, but it's going to be a journey. For, for, and for smaller companies, clearly, uh, there isn't the, the they don't have the, the financial facility and maturity to to, to build um, a three lines model from scratch. But if the direction of travel that everybody uh, should be aligned to the strategic objectives of the organisation and, and and looking to achieve those, and but but also being aware of the risks that, that get in the way and what, what residual risk we're prepared to accept uh, in a risk-taking business, um, then yes, I think the, the, you, you, you can apply this to almost any organization. It, it's, it's largely common sense. Great. So um, we're looking at here a slide on uh, just, just fleshing out integrated assurance, um, and these are things which the Institute of Internal Audit themselves have highlighted. Alignment. Uh, what do we mean by alignment? I think we, as I've just been saying, that we need to have the lines and the functions uh, all uh, headed in one direction. And again, quoting Michael from his forward, uh, we're looking for for one holistic view. And that word uh, holistic has come up uh, time and time again. This is what the board requires: is, is assurance from 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 multiple multiple sources that the that their objectives are are likely to be achieved. Collaboration is something that the IIA have emphasized very, very strongly. Um, I was talking to somebody yesterday who used to occupy a, a senior role in large FTSE 100 uh, in this area, and um, she, she was talking about the fungibility. Uh, of of lines, which I quite, quite like. I hadn't heard that term before, but it it does mean that there needs to be much more flexibility around cooperation uh, and information sharing and, and discussion, etc., between between the existing three lines. Um, accountability, well, that that um, has to shift, and we'll look at, at, at another slide in in just a minute. Um, more, I think, from the the risk, the, the oversight and control function that uh, that lines two and three have tended to be saddled with and seen as um, to the the front the front line. But that, of course, means that the the first line does need to have the right training, the right education, the right understanding, awareness of strategic objectives, etc. If it's to do the level of reporting which is required to make this new assurance model that we're proposing uh, function the way it needs to. And finally, objectives, we've spoken about them on, on a few, few times already. Um, that, of course, is the whole point of, uh, of a board, to set the strategy, uh, and to, to involve itself in, in risk-taking, which is managed in, in such a way that you can achieve your strategic objectives in, sustainably. So here's the next next slide. This um, this is a slightly ex exaggerated diagram, but as you'll see between the left and the right uh, models, we have shifted the first and third lines around um, because we feel that at the moment there is too much uh, focus on the third line as being the the ultimate source of of assurance. Of course, it it, it does have an, an independent status of its own, but um, to make the point, um, we do feel that the, the, the allocation of, of resources and responsibility and, and, of course, accountability needs to shift significantly more towards the first line. And that, that's a journey for a, a lot of companies. And as I said before, um, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, and it will also be wrong, I think, of, uh, of senior management and, and both the second and third line to complain if the first line is not delivering 
what they think they should be if they're not provided with the correct resources, the right education um, to enable them to, to do risk analysis and reporting to the, the standards required, uh, which can eventually go through to the board. Uh, next slide, please, Michael. And um, very briefly, just Gabby, you, some of you will be wondering what on earth is, is Gabby. Gabby is a um, an online tool which uh, accompanied uh, document raising the bar and which enables organizations to assess themselves against the, the principles and guidelines that, that we, we put out. Gabby stands for Gap Analysis and Benchmarking Insights. Uh, now, we've been collecting data for some six months or, or so. Um, it has been slower coming in than, than we had hoped, uh, but that is entirely due to current circumstances. Uh, however, from the data that we've got so far, and we will be releasing um, some validated data probably early part of, uh, of Q2, um, what we've seen here is, as in the two red boxes, very much reinforce uh, what I've just been saying, that embedding first-line risk-related decision-making um, is something that a lot of companies and respondents have said they need to do better. Um, there are a series of questions uh, which we've, we've asked people against the principles when we've asked them to score the principles, but we've also said, where do we need to improve? And we've made some suggestions. And the, this data here is coming from those auxiliary questions, things that we need to be thinking about spending more time on doing better. So it's interesting that those that two of the very top ones uh, address first and second line responsibilities, uh, division of responsibilities and accountability, particularly in the first line. Um, if we look at uh, the the fifth one across, the orange one, spending more time on, on emerging risks is, is something else uh, which could, could well do with a, a lot more focus. And these are issues which um, have not just come up out of the blue from, from this survey. Um, before we released the report last uh, in de December 2019, um, we did some 60 uh, interviews with uh, senior risk professionals and internal audit, etc., and some board risk committee chairs. Um, and the feedback we got from that and the short questionnaire we attached to it um, indicated similar trends and lines of thought as we're beginning to see from some of the data and feedback from Gabby. So that, that's enough from me. Uh, I'm going to hand back to Chris now, and I think we might have a poll coming up even. We do indeed have a poll coming up, and you and Chris wanted to ask our audience, is the traditional approach to risk appetite helpful in running your business? Absolutely. It's a thing of beauty. <laughs> to some extent, it has its merits. Not really. It gets mentioned, but doesn't really impact decision-making. Or finally, definitely not. It's totally meaningless in the real world. And I'm just launching that poll now. Uh, and again, fingers on buzzers from our audience who are about to beat their past record. Uh, yes, 53% in eight seconds. Well done, everyone. Uh, we have uh, some good and strong opinions out there. I'm going to leave the poll open just a few seconds longer. Uh, well over three quarters have voted. And I'll just uh, close the poll now and show you the results. Um, and basically, uh, it depends. It's uh, the audience uh, seems to indicate to some extent for 70% of the audience, to some extent, the traditional uh, approach to risk appetite is helpful. <laughs> right. So, so we're all. You.
we're all really heavily bought into risk appetite then, clearly, um, <laughs> which is good. It's excellent because I'm going to talk to you about abandoning risk appetite as an approach to risk. So that's jolly good. I'm pleased about that. Um, my slides have disappeared, Michael. Are they? Just a split second there. Just coming back. That's right. There we go. Right. Um, so we said we'd, we'd talk to you about a fresh approach to risk management. We thought we'd explore three lines of defense because that, that forms part of the approach. And what we're hearing there is people are broadly okay with the three lines of defense. 80% you know, of the people would not bin it, but clearly it needs to work better. The Gabby results say that you know it needs to be implemented better. That's fine. So the answer to that I would suggest is probably some kind of an integrated assurance model, um, which I won't go into now in any depth. But I will go into a different approach to risk management, which is been around for about 25 years. So it's not actually new in any way, but it's been around for about 25 years. But for whatever reason, I think probably because it never received significant regulatory backing when it was first launched. Um, it's not really got huge traction, but it is starting to get a lot of interest now. So certainty management or ob ob objective centric and certainty management approach to risk management. What is this? Well, it's focusing on the organization's top objectives and doing what's needed to achieve those objectives. Now you would say that that's normal risk management, which it is, but there is a subtle difference. So if we just step through the process, then we can open up to a discussion uh, and questions about how this might work. Um, so an organization needs to define its top level objectives. Now most organizations will define a bunch of strategic objectives, strategic aims. You want to expand into this organ, into this country, this region. We want to improve profitability. We want to do whatever it is. And that all comes under that strategic aims category there at the top. What a lot of organizations fail to do is they fail to identify those objectives which they're obliged to do as part of their license to operate. So continued viability, ESG, compliance culture and conduct. So there's a broad range of categories of strategic objectives that organizations should set for the senior team to achieve. And if you don't do that, then your risk management is going to go in the wrong direction to start with. So by, by setting a broad set of strategic objectives across a variety of, of categories, you ensure that your risk management efforts are focused on the right kinds of things. Okay, next slide, Michael. And just before we move on, Chris, uh, uh, Andrew Blackmore would just like you to expand a little bit on how does this apply to what you meant in the poll question by a traditional risk appetite. And John Spain makes a point here as well. Uh, it may sound like terminology, but he, it is a good point. He says, boards should not be seeking certainty. It is simply unattainable. And so the use of certainty as opposed to perhaps probability, I think, is an interesting point. Just might want to comment on those before we move on to the fresh okay. approach. Okay, so in terms of risk appetite, the, the, the difficulty with traditional traditional risk appetite is that it typically starts with a statement from the board, which is, uh, you've probably all seen them, they're slightly esoteric, you try to, try to understand what exactly the, the, the two or three paragraphs of text mean, really quite challenging. Um, some organizations focus in on financial um, metrics because that's easier to get your head around. But then you get to the qualitative side and, and trying to set a risk appetite using qualitative statements around how much conduct risk you're going to take. Well, that's probably a bad one because most people won't want very much that at all. But um, those types of things is, is very, very difficult. So trying to understand what traditional risk appetite actually means in practice is difficult and translating that into measures and metrics and some kind of risk appetite framework is not easy. And then in, and then trying to embed that into management decision making, you know, the whole thing 
it's been invented by consultants, let's be honest with you. It's been invented by consultants to keep consultants busy and most organizations struggle with it. So that's that's my general view of risk appetite frameworks and how they work. Um, and in terms of certainty, we'll come on to that, but basically you're absolutely right. So a board cannot have certainty. So this approach to risk management says, define your strategic objectives at the top level. The board then needs to prioritize those top level objectives in terms of their criticality to the organization. Those objectives that are more critical require a greater degree of certainty. There is no absolute in any of this, but a higher degree of certainty than those that are less critical. You then assess the, the certainty of each of your objectives by looking at the risks that attach to the objectives and looking at, for example, there may be some, some positive activity, some good things that you're trying to make happen to achieve the objective as well. So essentially, for each objective, you look at the bad things that could knock it off track and the good things that you're doing to help achieve it. And then you make an assessment of the certainty of achieving that top level objective. If you are not sufficiently certain that you're going to achieve a critical objective, you need to do more. You are implicitly above your risk appetite. You need to do more. You need to mitigate risks further. You need to do or make more good things happen. The other thing is risk lists. Most organizations will produce lists of risks and that will go to the board risk committee or the audit committee and they'll look at them and nod and say, jolly, good, move on. <clears throat> Completely meaningless. Risks need to be presented in the context of the objectives to which they relate so that your non-executive members who are, let's be honest, part-time, come in for a couple of days a month at the most, come in for tea and biscuits primarily, um, they, <laughs> they need to have information presented for them in a way that means that they can actually see very quickly what this means. So if I can see a, a strategic objective, I can see the risks attaching to it, and I can see that we're, we're hot on these risks and that my certainty of achieving this objective is lower than I would like, then there's an interesting conversation to be had with the senior management team. Next slide, please, Michael. And this is where we touched on integrated assurance, but this is the kind of reporting. This is a very simplified example. So this is the kind of reporting that you would like to see. So you'll see there certainty assessment, first line, green, amber, red, whatever it is against those objectives. Um, but also what you'd hope to see is that you'd hope to see the second line expressing a view in terms of how certain they think achieving those objectives are based on their understanding of the risks facing the organization and also the, the good things that the organization is trying to achieve. And if you screw them to the floor and push them really hard, you might even get the third line to come up with an opinion on certainty of achievement of objectives. So this is not about who is right and who is wrong, but what this is trying to do is it's trying to present the board with a range of views, and what you're looking for is the differences in opinion. So for example, on this little chart, we've got ESG social, green all the way through, you probably wouldn't spend any time on that whatsoever. And we've got culture and conduct, very high, but red all the way through. So we would push management in terms of what the heck are you doing here? We need to do more, we need to make this more certain. But the one that probably the board risk committee or the board would focus on is compliance, very high. We have a mix of opinion there. We have red and amber. Okay, so it's not looking good. Or we pick on ESG governance, and we have, again, a difference of opinion. Why do we have that difference of opinion? So what this does is it brings different perspectives, puts them in front of the board risk committee, in front of the audit committee or the board, 
and enables those discussions and opens up the conversation and, and the debate. And this is really where the integrated assurance comes in because um, as we showed earlier, the first line becomes the primary source of non-independent assurance to the board because they've got complete coverage of the business. The second line provides risk assurance and the third line provides independent assurance, but necessarily internal audit is quite a small function and it'll be quite focused and, and zoomed in or lasered in on certain parts of the business. So first line, primary source of non-independent assurance, second line risk assurance, third line independent assurance. You put the whole lot together in a pretty picture and that tells you where you're going as an organization. And interestingly, this is forward looking. It is not historical financial information, scores and doors, where have we been? This is where we're going. So this is exactly the kind of information that most boards would want. And you'll see not a single reference to risk appetite. Next slide, please, Michael. So major advantages, there's, there's no need to talk or to create those really horrible, woolly risk appetite statements at the board level, which basically no one can understand anyway. Um, risks and key performance indicators for, for projects and stuff are attached to sub-objectives further into the organization. So you can actually start at the very lowest part of the organization. You can start at process level. You can have process level objectives and cascade them upwards, if that's a thing. Um, and the achievability of objectives at the lower level will have an implication for the achievability of objectives at the higher level. And so you actually get a consolidation and a roll-up of risk information. And that produces that chart that you just saw. And the other thing that we shouldn't underplay is it creates strategic alignment throughout the organization. So risk management certainly goes from being this business prevention box ticking exercise to actually being a key determinant of performance and driving the business forward and keeping it strategically aligned and focused on what the organization is trying to achieve. And I think that's our last slide. It is indeed. And we uh, move to uh, some of the discussion points. There are quite a few points that please folks do enter into the uh, into the GoToWebinar question bar, any questions, comments, or observations. Um, but I've got a few. Well, first, you probably saw my eyebrows go up when you uh, <laughs> mentioned that the non-executive directors were there only for the tea and biscuits. Mark Duff says, non-executive directors, we are used as a source of expertise in our subject matter. Cliff Moise is curious, what type of biscuits? Uh, <laughs> and I'm curious, <laughs> you know, last year, what biscuits? But anyway, <laughs> um, but yeah, but I think I think Mark has a very good point here, which is uh, when it comes to this, it, we have this tension, don't we, that why boards want a non-executive director isn't quite aligned with what uh, what various regulators are proposing, i.e. that you are a full director whether you like it or not. There's no distinction between the two. Um, any comments on that? I'm completely I'm being facetious when I say they just turn for tea and biscuits. Clearly, I see I see independent non-executive directors as almost like hired guns. These are gunslingers. These guys know their stuff. They come in, they work for three, four different businesses. They carry information they've learned from these different organizations. They come in and they shoot management. I'm being, again, facetious slightly. But they ask really good, focused questions to get to the nub of the issue. And that's the value of them. They are, the, you know, they, they sit on the board. They're there for a period of time, but they, they genuinely don't, spend all their time within the business. So they can't possibly know everything that executive management does, which is why information needs to be presented in a way that it can be quickly absorbed and, and then framed into a really good laser-guided question 
to land on the CEO's nose. So that's that's what a good INED is able to do. They're hugely valuable, and I was just being slightly cheeky just to get a response. Um, Ian Shackle says, uh, much of your proposed approach is music to my ears. As a risk management and compliance leader over the last many years, I always promoted business partnership between those functions and the rest of the business whilst maintaining independence of mind and reporting line. Uh, do you, uh, Chris and Peter, think that there need to be modifications to the extent and nature of independence of those providing assurance? And I might just add to that uh, on a personal note, you noted the inversion you're seeking between the first and the third so that the first is there, you know, how much of this has been consultancy driven uh, out to make money for the boys and girls and the various audit practices and consultancies out there? Um, okay, well, I'll start with that. And Peter, do you want to join in in a second? So if, if I start, sure. um, I think it's historical. So um, before we had three lines of defense, we had, we had management and we had internal audit. An internal audit was there to to test controls and to provide opinion on controls and management didn't test controls because that was internal audit's job. And so what we've seen over a period of time with the creation of the second line and with the movement of, of internal audit to become more of a, a provider of assurance and not management's control testing team, um, we're having to, to, to create that inversion. And it comes back to what is the role of the first line. The first line, and I'll say again, is the primary source of non-independent assurance to the board because they have complete coverage of the business. Now, if the first line owns the organization's risks, they are responsible for managing those risks, they presumably should be capable of reporting to the board on those risks, although a lot of organizations look at the second line for that, which is probably not right. So the question I always ask of a senior management team is, can you demonstrate to me, demonstrate that you're under control? And if they look a bit wobbled at that point and then they start talking about internal audit and risk management, then I know that they haven't got the right infrastructure in place. You know, it's their business. They're running. They need to be able to demonstrate that they're under control, which means they need to be able to evidence in some clever way that the control framework is in place and working. So so that's um, the point I think I would make. You know, Peter, I'll let you speak. I'll let you bring it. Well, all, all I would really add is I'm, I'm going to quote something which is actually in the in the IAA document, uh, one of the principles about creating and protecting value. And I think that and yes, consultants have a have a, a vested interest in, in in working with organisations to Im improve their functionality and and viability and and profitability, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but I think this this little statement does get to the nub of, of what this is really about. All roles working together, collectively contributing to the creation and protection of value when they're aligned with each other and with the prioritized interest of stakeholders. And this alignment is achieved through communication, cooperation and collaboration. Now, what we've seen in the feedback uh, that we've been collecting from from the Gabby surveys, and that, that's that's well well over a hundred now uh, responses that we've had, um, is clearly indicating that there are some issues, um, even considerable issues, around the the trust. And Chris was saying, how do you know you're in control? How how many organisations really under, understand what their first line activities? are doing and, and are they reporting accurately and concisely 
and analytically what is going on. And I think this this might well require, and I think everybody has vested interests. And, and I think sometimes, you know, an external pair of eyes can could be very helpful. It doesn't have to be an expensive ex exercise. And, and funnily enough, actually running running a Gabby survey on your own risk governance will probably give you, because it comes up with, it virtually spits out the thematic analytics for you at, at the end. Uh, it tells you where you need where you need to improve, and who is saying who is saying where what um, which parts of the business are saying we need to be doing better at such and such and such. Um, so there will always be a role for consultants. Jeremy Wilson uh, says here that the first line needs maturity, experience, stature, and trust at board level uh, within any enterprise entrusted directly or indirectly with other people's savings. So here, a financial services emphasis. All employees across the entire enterprise need to understand and buy into that, and that suggests an overriding cultural imperative. To establish and sustain that culture, it must be reflected in recruitment, people development, and performance management across the enterprise. I don't see that human component reflected in your or the three line of defense approach. I think um, it's an interesting point. It didn't, I mean, I didn't call out um, uh, risk culture. We call it risk culture. I know that other people disagree that that exists or not and just call it culture. I don't mind. Um, we didn't call it out because that wasn't really the primary argument we, we were tra trying to make, but absolutely right. So you have hard controls. Bank reconciliation is a hard control. You've got lots of hard controls and you have soft controls and risk culture is a soft control. Soft controls will undermine the effectiveness of hard controls every single day of the week. If you don't have your soft controls right, if you don't have your risk culture right, then it doesn't matter what controls, hard controls you've got in place, they're completely useless. Um, so it's, it starts with um, incentivization um, at the top, and you, you work through from there um, to make sure that the organization, that people are bought into doing the right things um, and are not incentivized to do the wrong things. It's easier said than done, because also, how do you influence culture? Um, anthropologists say that you can't really influence culture, it's the sum of its parts, um, and that cultures only really change as a result of shock. So you'll have a, a shared narrative, and it's only when that, share, that shared narrative is proven to be false that you move on and come up with a new narrative, and that's when you get cultural change. And so in order to drive <clears throat> cultural change within an organization, you need to create a shock. You have to say, well, the, the, the old shared narrative is wrong, let's break that somehow. Okay, we can now have a period of time when we can move to a new shared narrative, a new culture, and that's the point at which you can make significant change in culture. But that's you know hard to engineer. Peter, you're an expert on this stuff. Well, I would just say that with the principle seven uh, for board risk committees um, goes into this in some detail, risk culture and, and remuneration. Uh, of the 50, 50 sub principles or guidelines with, within uh, that part of the document, uh, seven of them address risk culture and remuneration. Uh, whether the organization's purpose, values and board approved risk culture is appropriately embedded in the organization's risk strategy reflected in observed behaviors and decisions. And we then list um, seven, seven points. So I, I think we, we certainly have not overlooked it. Um, and also in the, the section which, which deals with the CRO and risk function, again, we reference risk culture. So 
it, it is there, it, it, okay. but it is, uh, as on one of Chris's slides, it's, it's a component part of strategic objectives. And we know that the FCA and the PRA are, are focusing very clearly uh, and strongly on that at the moment. I mean, I have to say, I can remember talking to Hector Sants in 2010 and the FCA was around uh, about this. And here we are 11 years later and we're still waiting for the regulators to come up with some definitive culture audit assessment. But the initiative is uh, is on on the on the way now and and will arrive later this year for sure. Um, so well, we've got yep. a few more questions to get through, so we'll have to speed up a little bit here. Um, Said Hussein is curious, you know, why do banks and insurance companies continue to use risk appetite statements and risk appetite monitoring reports if they don't add value? Uh, most organizations use risk and control of self assessments by the first line to demonstrate assurance, but they're very much backward looking. Can you recommend an alternative? And Sophie Hutchinson, I think, points to an interesting bit, the conflict between the first and the second line. The three lines of defense model has given two lines of defense departments plenty of opportunity to say, I am oversight and validation, but it's not my job to X, which irritates senior management and first line tremendously, uh, coupled with the growth in numbers of both first and second line uh, of defense teams. How is your new approach going to lead to more efficient and less people heavy, i.e. less costly understanding of risk and how to manage it? All right. Okay. So um, let's start with the uh, RCSA thing. Um, yeah, absolutely right. Most RCSA, most risk and control self-assessment, uh, most organisations do it. Um, we should have asked a question around that. I, I suspect it's the devil's work, um, or highly unlikely to be a thing of beauty. Um, RCSAs are, are generally backwards looking, absolutely right. Most organizations don't do them very often, sometimes just once a year, and it's a bureaucratic nightmare. Um, so the answer is, how does management demonstrate that it is under control? Well, um, this is where we talk about integrated insurance, and I have worked with clients to introduce positive assurance reporting, where actually you, senior management defines its key controls, but then actually spends most of its time and effort focusing on those um, uh, monitoring controls that give it comfort that the key controls are working. So for example, a, a bank risk reconciliation is a monitoring control. If a bank reconciliation works, everything underneath it in the, in the cash cycle works. And so the sensible thing is to, yes, understand what your key controls are, and you might need to do some boring RCSA process once a year, but on a, an ongoing basis, you have your monitoring controls, which give you a flavor for whether your key controls are working. That's a far smaller set of controls to keep an eye on to, to monitor. But the caveat is monitoring controls are detective. And in some circumstances, you need to be uh, having effective preventative controls in place. So it's not a panacea. There is always going to be an element of, of painful, bureaucratic, burdensome work. Technology can help continuous control, monitoring, all that kind of stuff that's been around for decades and still hasn't quite broken through yet. But maybe it will do with AI and all the rest of it. Yeah, Hugh, Hugh Purser made a, a very similar point. You know, can automation such as AI help carry more of the burden? Um, I'd like to turn to, to, we've got time for just two more, I'm afraid. Uh, I'd like to wrap up. Uh, Jane G points out that uh, she, she was told by somebody at a big four consultancy uh, categorically that banks do not care about reducing financial crime. And, and you haven't mentioned this. And Ian Harris uh, opened early on with a, a comment that is there a natural conflict between risk management models of this kind and the organization's ability to manage and avoid risks arising from unethical or out and out wrongful behavior by rogue actors? You know, we've seen all of these independent uh, folks 
and very carefully writing out any responsibility for finding fraud or crime in anything that they do. Um, so where, where does it fall here? Well, I think in terms of... It's another culture issue, isn't it? At the end of the day, it's, it's people and, beha and behavior. And culture, after all, is, is just how groups of people behave. Um, SMCR was, was a first step in trying to uh, pin accountability onto senior people in, in financial services. It's being extended. And coming down the track, as, as I hinted earlier, uh, is going to be a much wider uh, oversight of, of people behavior conduct um, coming from the FCA. And it will be mandated and it will be re reinforced and regularly supervised. That That is going to happen. Um, can you get rid of rotten apples? No, <laughs> they're always going to be there in every organ organization. But um, I, I think there are some organizations which seem to um, harbor them. Um, and um, they will, they will, they will, I, I think public opinion actually will slowly and is, is not even slowly, it's quite quickly beginning to, you know, to seek out this type of behavior and, and condemn it. Um, it's, it's an ongoing journey, isn't it? It's human nature, You're, <laughs> and it's closely linked to, to remuneration. Well, I'm getting a, a number of thanks uh, through from uh, a number of people. So it's always a warning to me that uh, we're coming to the end <laughs> of time. Anna Hinder uh, makes a fun comment that my parents will be in shock that I'm actually using my anthropology degree uh, and points out the cultures change in many different ways. But um, I think I'll conclude on the last bit, which is cost. I too, when I see these sorts of models, you know, take a deep breath and sigh. Uh, here we go again. Um, and Bob McDowell says, time's an expensive commodity, but what maximum percentage of operating costs should be indicative of the resources deployed before it's time to exit uh, that scale of the business? Um, but I think I'd like to conclude on a question from Peter Fanning. Do you have any advice for SMEs with the CFO, CRO, COO, CTO, could be in the same function and possibly the same person. <laughs> well, this goes back to the question you threw at Peter earlier about you know, the size of the organisation for three lines of defence, and this is really difficult. So, if you're, you know, if you're a fintech, if you're a, a, an SME, you're growing rapidly. You know, the CEO wears half a dozen different hats, and it's not possible to to have segregated second and third lines. Um, you know, most organisations only look at third line when they get, you know into the millions of, of turnover. Um, so the, 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 the key is to, to think about four eyes principle and think, right, okay, well, let's at least try to implement some kind of challenge process so that we don't have unconstrained um, decision-making by the senior team. At least let's, let's you know, nominate someone as devil's advocate. And that is their role in these meetings. Your devil's advocate, don't go with the consensus, do challenges. But then again, if you are the major shareholder in a fintech startup and you've got multiple hats on, you know, there is an element of l let you get on with it because that's how these businesses grow. So Jeff Bezos, would he have achieved what he did if he'd had someone saying, are you really sure about that? Probably not. So um, there is an element of letting entrepreneurs be entrepreneurs. Yep. Here, here. <laughs> okay. Well, sadly, gentlemen, we, we have reached the end of time, but uh, if, you, if you could just bear with me, I'd like to give th three quick rounds of thanks. Um, before I do so, um, I think John Spain made a particularly good comment here. Uh, you know, alignment suggests that they all agree in an echo chamber without understanding the problems, blind leading the blind. 
Uh, and you pointed out, of course, I think as well, this idea of difference of opinion and speaking as a Ned myself, where I'm seeing these things boil up. That's exactly, I think, what we try and do is to, to identify where, if there is a consensus of opinion, is that a good thing? And where there's a difference of opinion, uh, you know, why does it exist? And these approaches that wave back and forth, I think, are very, very useful in helping to alert us to whether the strategic objectives are going to be met and what risks will throw them offline. So thank you for all of that. Um, but um, a, a big round of thanks to our sponsors as ever for letting us uh, range across what is a big area, uh, risk. Uh, thank you, the audience, for listening. A reminder that there's a lot uh, coming forward as ever. Uh, please visit the website. But some fascinating insights uh, from Ariel Guckman on Thursday into some of the changes in Switzerland's wealth management industry, which I think might be uh, somewhat informative for those of us involved in wealth management here in the UK uh, post-Brexit. So that, that could be quite fascinating. But finally, if I could, I'd like to thank uh, Chris and Peter. And uh, Peter, maybe one day we'll see each other despite the <laughs> 200 yards that separate us. Uh, <laughs> and I'd like to say thank you very much to both of you for coming and presenting what's been a very thoughtful presentation and clearly very well received. Unfortunately, I am as yet unable to open the floodgates of uh, technology so you can see the applause but i have brought my korean karma <laughs> and i i will have to make uh, do with that but thank you so much for coming aboard today and uh thank you for sharing all of your thoughts with the audience thank you, thank you. bye everyone